Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast from Voice Community. In this episode, what's going on with education recovery in the here and now? We look at the early years, the funding issues and framework reforms. We look at annual leave and holidays in your working life and we bust those maternity myths. Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast in June. Uh, this month is quite a special occasion for us. We have our early years lead, Letitia McCalla, with us for the early years funding issues and framework reforms in a few minutes' time. But first of all, Martin, the here and now, the future of education report uh, was published recently. What can you uh, inform us all about that? Following a survey of uh, voice community members that we did in spring, we made some recommendations for the future of education, uh, looking at the way things can be improved, such as improvements to early years funding, support for SEND, and reforms to things like the curriculum and early years that hopefully would support staff and pupils now and in the future, and also contribute to education recovery. Hopefully, every member has received a copy of the education recovery report in their uh, inbox, and we've also been busy sending copies out out to the government and to other agencies. We discussed our education report in the sector conference that happened at the end of June and if you weren't able to attend you can catch up with that by logging on to the website and following the links there. Thank you. So the education recovery Martin, I feel like I need a bit of a sigh here. Kevin Collins has resigned. He said the package of support announced 2nd of June falls far short of what is needed. It's too narrow, too small and will be delivered too slowly. The average primary school will directly receive just £6,000 per year, which is equivalent to around about £22 per child. Not enough's being done to help vulnerable pupils, children in the early years or 16 to 19 year olds. Above all, he says, I am concerned that the package announced 2nd of June betrays an undervaluation of the importance of education. Where are we at with this now, Martin? Because it seems like this has been going on for a little while and the arguments are still uh, raging about it. And obviously um, it's a bit uh, di- dis- disappointing to see Kevin Collins feels like he needs to resign. Yeah, I mean, as as we've spoken about on these podcasts before, we've been fully engaged with the DfE about recovery, about the demands that it's going to place on the workforce and, and the support that they will need from the government in order to make recovery a reality. We know that Kevin Collins was recommending somewhere in the region of between 10 and 15 billion pounds mm. for this. So we've been really, really disappointed um, by the announcement of just 1.4 billion pounds. And indeed, Deborah Lawson, the Assistant General Secretary of Community, said that she feels the plans are severely compromised, they lack ambition, and obviously they don't have the backing of the Treasury. Just to outline what has been offered, there's a billion pounds, but that's pretty much all focused on. Uh, extending the national tutoring programme. Schools will now be able to provide additional tuition support using locally employed tutors, but actually it doesn't just give the money to schools, which is what so many schools have been calling out for. It does provide uh, £250 million for additional teacher training, and it does, for the first time, we're pleased to see, recognise the importance of early years by providing £150 million of training for early years practitioners too. But this is focused on key areas such as speech and language development. So we don't really know yet how impactful that training will be, although we do recognise that uh, the more highly qualified and trained staff are, 
then the more likely it is that pupils will benefit from their input. This money that you just outlined there that's been announced, do we know exactly when that is going to be available? Is it available immediately? Yes, yeah, so it's going to be uh, available from September. Um, so schools at the moment should be aware of the money and they should be aware of the National Tutoring Programme. And any plans that they've got that currently involve the National Tutoring Programme should be able to be extended into the, the following year. It's important to say that the government have been canny by saying that this is just the first a lot of money that is being allocated to education recovery. So we will have to wait and see what happens in the future. But at the moment, you know, £1 billion out of the 15 that we were hoping to see over the next three to four years is disappointing. Bit of a left field question potentially here that y- you may not have uh, been prepared for, so apologies. But the trainee teachers who were training last year during the pandemic and perhaps missed a good portion of their initial teacher training. Is there any sort of recovery plan for them? Those students who have uh, just completed their initial teacher training and are about to go into schools to work for the first time will begin um, the early career framework. So they will follow a two-year training programme. Importantly, though, we've just learned in the last uh, couple of weeks that those people who had just completed their NQT year this year, so their first year of employment, will also be eligible for an additional 5% of PPA time next year in recognition of the fact that not only was their initial teacher training disrupted, but their first year of employment was also severely impacted. Uh, And so this is some way to support them. Uh, It gives them time to access the training and maybe to uh, speak with colleagues or do observations in order to help them improve. How much of that is actually down to the recovery program and how much of that is was already going to happen and so it's coincidence so early career teachers um that framework was already going to yeah. happen so the two-year freight change um to the early career framework was was already in the offing that extra five percent that is being offered to the second year teachers that's brand new funding and it's been funded directly by the dfe in recognition that these guys have lost out quite a lot So moving on to early years funding then, and it's my pleasure to bring in our uh, early years lead uh, voice community, Letitia McCalla. Hi, Letitia. Hello. We've always known that there are problems with the free and inverted commas entitlement funding being much lower than the actual cost of provision. But I think there's been some evidence from the Early Years Alliance recently. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yes, Rob. Well, we read the paper with a lot of interest, actually, and it told us exactly what we thought all along. It told us that the average hourly funding rate for the three- and four-year-old free childcare offer in 2020-21 to was two-thirds of what the government itself thought it, it needed to be. Quite a difference. A big difference. One private government briefing document stated that to fully fund the free entitlement offer was unaffordable. The government knew the move to 30 hours would result in price increases for parents of younger children and they also knew that providers would be expected to work to a maximum ratio which would lower the quality of the provision. So there's a a government petition, am I right, calling for an independent review into childcare funding and affordability um, which I think recently hit 100,000 signatures um, which is obviously very timely, but I think 100,000 signatures means the government will have to consider it um, in Parliament. Most definitely. Well, we, we're hoping that, that the 
petition, along with the evidence provided by the Early Years Alliance and the support that it's been given from the sector, will actually push the government to give it some serious consideration. So uh, Deborah Lawson, Voice Communities Assistant General Secretary, has made a statement on this, hasn't she, Letitia? Uh, what she said? She said... We call on the government to invest in the early years sector, which has a vital role in both children's development and in post-pandemic economic recovery. Staff need a national pay and conditions and career structure. There is already an early years recruitment and retention crisis, and that will only get worse unless the government acts now. Yeah, um, and Martin, um, I know you're heavily involved in the Future of Education report that Voice Communities recently put together, and we've included in there um, some early years members' concerns, and what does that include? Yeah, so staff are concerned that the early years um, doesn't feel valued. Um, pay is a, a key example of this. Pay in the sector is too low. Funding in the sector is inadequate and it's inconsistent. And we know that young children have lost social skills during the pandemic, and the government really need to fund the sector in order to redress that balance. So we've made some recommendations in our report, including through appropriate training, qualifications and funding, as well as a fair wage being paid to every worker. We want to fix this free entitlement that Letitia's been talking about so it is truly free working for both the earliest settings and parents that are using those settings. And we want there to be career development for workers in the early years so that staff can feel valued and can be developed and uh, improve because that will have a real positive impact on uh, the way children learn, developing social skills and mental well-being. Fantastic. And, and if anyone listening wants to actually see the report in full, they can go to www.voicetheunion.org.uk forward slash future hyphen education so continuing with our early years sort of special here then um we're going to move on to talk about the changes to the early years foundation stage framework in a nutshell what that framework is or is supposed to do is it it sets the standards that all early years providers must meet to ensure that children learn and develop well it should ensure children are kept healthy and safe and it should ensure that children have the knowledge and skills they need to start school. So pretty basic, that's what the framework is there to do. We don't have time to discuss in detail what the framework currently looks like, and we're hoping that people listening that this is uh, important to will already know that. So, Letitia, can you perhaps give us a bit of an idea about why changes have been made and what the changes are? Yes, Rob. Well, the the main reasons for the um, reforms were to improve outcomes at age five, that's at the end of the reception year, and particularly with early language and literacy that's been a main focus um also to reduce workload so that practitioners can spend more time with the children and to support good oral health for all children and to make a number of um, minor amendments to um, the framework due to like updates in legislation. Okay, so there are three main changes, I think, um, and let's try and take those one at a time. The headline, the one that's a bit different perhaps, uh, is the change to the safeguarding welfare requirements where it now explicitly includes promoting good oral health. That is um, something that's completely new um, in the revised framework and um, the DfE have actually given examples to the settings about the way that they can implement this. It'll be down to each individual setting to decide how they actually do it Um, but the examples that have been given are um, you know talking to children about eating sugary foods or the importance of brushing their teeth. 
The second big change um, is around assessment. They've removed one of the criteria that's exceeding. So now there's only emerging or expected, um, which is it's hoped that that will simplify the assessment process. Um, there's also been a removal of statutory moderation by local authorities. Um, this was based on some research that was done with teachers about the time it takes to get all of the evidence together and do the moderation process. Um, so it's hoped that these changes will reduce the amount of paperwork um, and give them more time to spend with the children. So I was talking to one of my um, friends about this. She She's a reception teacher, so she works in EYFS. And I, I, I think based on that point, one of the things she said, um, which I thought was quite encouraging, was that she said she couldn't wait to put her iPad down uh, and to encourage her TA to, to, to do so as well. And I, I think that's perhaps around that gathering of evidence for the moderation process. So that's encouraging. That is, that is encouraging. Um, and I think that's been a main driver behind the reforms. And they actually want to be spending that time with the children. And like anything, I suppose, we have to wait and see how it turns out. But exactly. it sounds good. It, it sounds good, good but I think the proof will be in the pudding. The third and biggest change um, is in regards to the curriculum. Um, the government have revised all 17 of the early learning goals across the seven education programmes. I think it's really important that we mention all of them today because um, these are going to be the key things that our, our, our members are going to be um, working towards. There's a new focus on extending vocabulary. PSED now includes self-regulation and self-care. Fine and gross motor skills have been separated into two separate early learning goals. There's a new goal on comprehension in literacy. In maths, there's a greater focus on deep understanding of numbers 1 to 10. And new early learning goal on number patterns. Shape, space and measure are no longer an early learning goal but still remain in the education programme. Technology has been removed as an early learning goal but still remains in the programme under expressive arts and design. On to the big question then, the most important question of all. What will be the impact of these changes on settings, staff, children, workload, all the things that we spend our time having to think about and talk. DFB says the changes will reduce workload. They've received a lot of positive feedback from early adopter schools and have been trialling the revised framework alongside the Development Matters document. We've had a bit of feedback, which is mixed, but probably leaning towards positive. Letitia, what do you think the impact's going to be? Thanks, Rob. Well, I definitely do think that these reforms will bring about changes that will need to be implemented. Um, you know, nursery leaders and managers will need to look at their existing policies and practices practices and update them to bring them in line with the revised early learning goals so there is some there's some workload implications there 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 is definitely initially um they'll also need to contact update staff on the changes and provide any training that may be necessary um you know or you know opportunities for professional development um, to help implement the changes. That's always important, isn't it? Making sure that the people you're expecting to make these changes have got the required skills and, and making sure they've been trained on it. I think that's, you know, number one priority because if those that are going to be implementing or working with the children aren't up to date or trained to deliver it, it's not going to have the desired impact that it's there for. Yeah, and we might come back to um, how staff have been and how, how schools in general have been informed about this. But Martin, what about you? What do you think are the main implications of this, these changes? From listening to Letitia, from reading the documentation, I think there's the potential for this to have um, 
some some really positive impacts. But as with any change, the proof won't really be learned until until later on once this is fully embedded. One of the things that we are particularly concerned about is this is something which is due to be in place in September. And yet here we are at the end of June and the government has only just recently uh, begun to do some of the training videos and settings are only just really learning about how they're going to implement this, despite the fact that many settings will be closing for the six weeks holidays very shortly. And so that really does give us a little bit of cause for concern. Yeah. So, so just some feedback. I mean, we're always after feedback. Anyone listening, if you want to give us feedback on this episode, a past episode, any ideas for us to touch on in the future? We've had a little bit on this subject from um, some early years teachers. Michelle told us that she thinks the, the, the focus on early language development will make a real difference and that focusing on strengthening a deeper understanding of numbers, not to 10, will help children to make better progress in maths. Whilst uh, Sophie said that uh, some elements uh, she feels would be very beneficial and a few less so, I suppose that's that's pretty standard for any, any um, new new framework. But she did say that working with educational programs will allow more freedom rather than working to achieve early learning goals. And this is a positive change as some teachers focus too much on the end goal rather than the here and now using our language from our <laughs> podcast. I hope yeah, you've been listening <laughs> on the here and now. Um, can we just briefly maybe touch on um, how this has been communicated to the sector? Because I, I feel like from what I've heard, that's perhaps been the biggest criticism martin yes it's questionable really as we've already mentioned we're quite late on in the summer term already and this is due to be implemented from september the first the framework only became legislation back in march so only three months ago and there's been a few vodcasts so video podcasts produced by the dfe to explain the changes in more detail um, but there haven't really been any training courses and of course covid has had an impact on the ability for settings to have uh, in-person training events or training events where more than one setting have been able to attend and so that's really hampered things the dfe have organized an online support service for providers and practitioners which has just gone live uh, and we'll be sending more information to members about this um, just as soon as we can. All of the details will be in the next newsletter will be going out um, next week. Yes, yeah, so again, some of the feedback we had from uh, from Sophie said that she felt there had been a lack of publicity and she particularly couldn't help feel that it was a little last minute, the Tisha. What, what do you think about the people's readiness? Um, you know, I totally um, agree with Sophie on that and, you know, as Martin's um, already mentioned, um, communication hasn't been great on this. Um, so it does seem like that practitioners' readiness for September will come down to how well the individual settings are actually um, getting prepared for the changes or if practitioners have decided to do their own personal research and training. Which I'm sure most of them would have done. They're all very diligent people, we know. But I suppose, you know, if you literally don't know it's happened, you don't even know you need to do the research, do you? in the first place so 100 percent, and obviously you know we would say that there is a responsibility on employers as well to ensure that their staff are up to date on changes and receive any appropriate training absolutely so on to our next usual uh, item your working life and this time around we're looking at leave annual leave furlough loo payments all those things so Annual leave and statutory rights. Martin, do you want to kick us off with what people's statutory rights are when it comes to their annual leave? Okay, so most people will understand their annual leave as being holiday. So this is the time off throughout the year that you get. Um, And if you work full time, you're entitled to a minimum 
of 5.6 weeks of paid annual leave each year. So that's around about 28 days. And this includes 20 days of normal leave plus the eight bank holidays. Although obviously your contract might say that you're entitled to more holiday than this. And so it's really, really important to check your contract because your contract will give you the specific details of your holiday, including things like when the holiday year runs. So is it an academic year or is it a financial year or some different? And this should be told you right at the beginning of when you start work so that you know whether you're coming in at the beginning of the year or whether you're coming in partway through. So if you come in partway through the year, you're likely to have your holiday uh, prorated down based on the amount of the holiday year you're going to work. And just to cover those eight bank holiday days, even though they are part of your statutory entitlement, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're entitled to take them on the days the bank holidays occur. You may be required to work on a bank holiday Monday, but that day should still be added onto your entitlement. And it's important to note, not it's not just bank holidays that you might be required to work. There is no absolute right to take your holiday at the time of your choosing. It has to be convenient for your employer too. And I guess for our members, that's going to apply mostly to those who are working in school settings or settings that operate term time only. It's unlikely that you'll be able to take any annual leave whilst the setting is open and you'll be required to take it during the school holiday. So we're talking about this as statutory rights, but so who specifically are we talking about here? Who does this apply to? This applies to agency workers, it applies to workers with irregular hours, it even applies to workers on zero hours contracts. Um, and uh, what the regulations say is that workers have the right to get paid for leave, they have the right to accrue holiday entitlement during maternity, paternity and adoption leave, they have the right to build up holiday entitlement when they're off work sick and they can request holiday at the same time that they're off on sick also. Uh, and so it's really important to, to note that that covers most types of worker in the UK. Okay, so let's just briefly touch on furlough. Um, workers have the right to build up or accrue holiday entitlement whilst they're on temporary leave, known as furlough, because of coronavirus, don't they? And they can also take leave whilst on furlough. Yeah, yeah. Is that also the case for people like agency workers? Yes, yeah, so agency workers and, and other staff with worker status, including those who use an umbrella company, also uh, have their usual holiday entitlement when on furlough. Holiday entitlement for those who don't have worker status remains the same and it will depend on your contract. So like I said earlier, it's really, really important to check on contracts. It's also worth pointing out that if you were unable to take any holiday during uh, the last couple of years because of coronavirus, you are able to carry that over. Um, but again, check your contract or speak to your HR department for details. It's becoming our catchphrase, I think, isn't it? But it really is the, the, the first place to start on so many things. Check your contract. So if you weren't able to take holiday or you don't feel like you're going to be able to take holiday, are you able to take um, payments in lieu of holiday? No, in short. Um, the only time someone can get paid instead of taking their statutory leave is if you resign or retire from your job. Right. Instead of uh, being paid for it though, your employer might say that um, you need to take that leave and use it up before you actually leave the employment of the company. So in some instances, people can leave work a week or two before their finish date to use up that holiday first. So that's some of the simpler uh, parts. Um, onto some of the slightly more complicated stuff now. Part-time workers are entitled to the same 56 weeks paid holiday but it's going to amount to fewer than 28 days yeah it's going to equal less than 28 days because most of the time a part-time worker will only be working a proportion of the week 
you can usually find this out by looking in your contract, which will normally have a number, for example, 0.6 would mean that you work three days each week. And so if you work three days a week, you can take the number three for the days that you're working and multiply that by 5.6 um, weeks, and that will tell you, broadly speaking, the number of days that you are entitled to have off each year. And so in that instance, is, uh, three times 5.6 is 16.8 days. Term time staff who work full-time hours are not considered as working part-time, are they? No, it's really important to note that if you work a full-time week, um, you are still entitled to the full 5.6 weeks of annual paid leave. A court of appeal held that the holiday entitlement of term time workers should not be prorated. So if you work term time only, you are still entitled to be paid for 28 annual leave days. Uh, Martin, when leave is affected by coronavirus, what can you cover for us on that? Yeah, so if you're prevented from taking annual leave because of coronavirus, the government has stipulated that you can carry it over into the next two years. Again, though, I would say speak with your manager, check your contract, just be absolutely sure. Don't just try and book anything, but, but speak to people before you do anything about that. There's a bit of give and take there, perhaps, isn't there? You know, always have those conversations. Um, and self-isolation. So current government guidance states that you must self-isolate if you have symptoms of COVID, are identified as a close contact, or have travelled to a country on the red or amber lists. Now, I know this is a conversation I remember having this time last year. Let's, let's just take the example of teachers. They have their six-week holidays, and they've booked a holiday and they go on that holiday and then for whatever reason when they return have to isolate and can't work. Yeah so whilst it's reasonable for employers to pay you if you're self-isolating or you might even be furloughed many employers are advising you who might be planning on foreign travel especially during the later part of summer to be aware of your responsibilities especially if this means that you wouldn't be available to work at the start of the new school term. In all cases like this, we advise that you speak with your employer. Be transparent, but we do know that there are a number of people who've uh, had holidays rebooked from last year. And of course, if those holidays are taking place, if they're going ahead, then it's impossible for you to claim on your insurance because those holidays have not actually been cancelled. And so therefore you might end up going away and finding that you are unable to work when you return due to the requirement to self-isolate. It's not your employer's responsibility if you have gone to an amber or a red country to pay you at all. Um, and it's important to understand that traveling to a, a, an amber or a red country is currently advised against by the government. It's important to notice, finally, really, really important to notice that you can be sanctioned legitimately if you have gone away to an amber or a red country um, and are required to self-isolate because you could have breached a legal prohibition from the government or because you are potentially frustrating your contract. So, bottom line, speak with your employer. Speak with them now, long before you're planning on going. Speak with them now and find out exactly what it is that's going on. I think that point on transparency extends to if you're going on holiday to a green-listed country as well. But mind what happens to somebody if they do go on holiday to a green country and then whilst they're there, the rules change? Contact your employer at the first opportunity. It's all about being transparent here. Hopefully, your employer will be reasonable. You didn't travel to an amber or a red country. You travelled to a green country. You had no way of knowing that it was going to change whilst you were out there. And so we would hope that in those instances that you would get paid as normal. And finally, it is time to once again bust some myths. Boom! 
So this month, we are busting some myths on maternity leave. So I'm going straight in, Martin, with you cannot return to work at the beginning of a school holiday. So let's say the beginning of a six weeks holiday. You can't return to work then. Yes, you can. Job done. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but let, let, let's be fair here. Dozens of teachers are told by the employer that they have to return to work for a day or maybe a week before the holidays start if you want to get paid in full. That's not actually the case. The date that you return is determined entirely by you. You can choose to take up to one year of maternity leave or as little as a couple of weeks. The only requirement in law is that you give your employer notice of your intended date of return. We would recommend that you do that in writing and then if you decide you want to return midway through the summer holidays then you can do if that is what you wish. So th those uh, the notice you've got to give if you work in a school under burgundy book terms the notice period is 21 days to return. If not, the Work and Families Act of 2006 applies and it's eight weeks notice. That's right. The only legal ground on which an employer can refuse a return to work from maternity or shared parental leave is if you don't give enough notice. You, you might, of course, choose to go back uh, to work for a few days before a holiday period, especially if you, know, you want to prepare for the start of a new term, for example. But that's entirely your choice, isn't it? It's not something that you have to justify. Yeah, absolutely. It's entirely your choice. And of course, you also have the option to look at keeping in touch days as well uh, as, as a way to reintroduce yourself back into the workplace and to do any um, bits of work in that run up to your full return often known as kit days, aren't they? And they're paid at your full daily rate. Yeah, um, they should be negotiated between the employee and the employer. And although you have a right to request them, it's a negotiation. So you can't say I'm coming in on this day un unless the employer agrees to it. Download our information sheet on maternity, paternity, adoption, family rights and benefits from the website www.voicetheunion.org.uk for more information or call our team on 01332 372337. Myths busted. Boom! That's the end of another podcast. Thanks so much for listening. As we mentioned earlier, last weekend it was Voice Communities Virtual Conference, and you can watch again at www.voicetheunion.org.uk forward slash voice hyphen conference hyphen 2021. And on social media, it's hashtag voiceconf2021 please also follow us on social media on twitter you can get us at, at community union and at voice the union um, on instagram you can reach us by selecting community union or one word and on facebook it's voice community and i'd just like to say thank you to rob and martin for having me here today well thank you that was my next line thank you for, <laughs> for joining us this week martin and i'll be back next month but thanks so much Letitia, for joining us uh, this month for the early years uh, section of the here and now um, and as always please do get in touch um, if you've got anything you'd like us to discuss yeah the email address is educationpolicy at community-tu.org and please subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts or on Podbeam wherever you're listening to this and leave us a, a review and, and rate us that would really help us as well and we look forward to seeing you next time mm -hmm.